0: Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Um, Back to uh, episodes with D-Day. We're going to start out with the paratrooper landings. While most of the invasion forces were being loaded onto their boats on June 5th, 24,000 paratroopers were waiting to take a far faster but no less dangerous journey across the English Channel. Two forms of transport carried the paratroopers to their landing points. Some were crammed into gliders, which were towed by planes to their targets before making the rough landings in Normandy. This was dangerous and difficult work, and the casualty rate among glider pilots on D-Day was extremely high, but allowed heavier equipment and more troops to be brought in. The journeys of the other soldiers fulfilled the classic image of the paratrooper drop. Dozens of men crammed into noisy planes, barely able to hold on and shouted conversation with their neighbors. Everything they needed was strapped to them, including support weapons and bulky radio sets. As they reached their targets, they would leap out in midair and parachute to the ground below. As the first wave of planes swept in, many pilots became nervous about German anti-aircraft fire. The small number of planes lost that the German batteries were largely ineffective, but there was no way for the pilots to know at this time. They swerved through the skies, throwing around their cargoes of soldiers. Confusion arose as they tried to find their targets in the dark, and men were scattered across miles of French countryside many far from their drop zones. Those who found the right place set up lights to signal the landing zones to later aircraft, making it easier to drop troops in the night. But the operation got off to an inauspicious start. One of the most daring parts of this plan was Operation Titanic. Despite its grand name, Titanic only involved 10 soldiers, paratroopers, from Britain's elite special air force, the SAS. What made the operation important was how and where they landed. Just after midnight, the first of three Titanic drop teams landed on the Cohesion Peninsula, miles from the rest of the army's drop sites and landing beaches. As well as 10 commandos, hundreds of specially made dummies called Ruperts were dropped. The Ruperts were crudely made designed only to look like a paratrooper in the dark as they fell, and contained self-destruct mechanisms that would destroy the evidence of a fake after they landed. 500 of them parachuted down alongside the SAS men. On the ground, the men let off fireworks and played gamophone records of gunfire, exaggerated to increase their volume. They set up lights to indicate a drop zone being prepared. This distraction succeeded in drawing the Germans' attention. The Germans' 915th Infantry Regiment, the main reserves near Omaha Beach, headed away from the coast to deal with the threat of a non-existent paratrooper landing. Those 10 SAS soldiers had an impact out of proportion to the size of their forces, but they also suffered disproportionate losses. Only two of them made it home. The main British paratrooper force was the British 6th Air Force Division, consisting of 8,000 men. It was dropped east of Caen. It was able to capture bridges across River Orne, preventing the German Panzer forces from coming in from the east and hitting the left flank of the seaborne forces. The first wave of British paratroopers landed too far east, but their arrival came as a surprise to the Germans giving them the initiative. They seized the village of Ranville and moved closer to the bridges where they secured a landing zone. Two hours after the initial drops, they were joined by troops and gliders, including anti-tank guns. Now close to German bridges, they captured all but one of them and fought off a counterattack by the German 716th Division. The remaining bridge at Torn was a strategically important one, as it carried the main road between Caen, Le Havre, and Rouen. Seeing the need to deal with it, Major Roosevelt assembled a team of explosives and a jeep. They raced to the bridge and blew it up, cutting the last German route across that stretch of the river. Out at the coast, 150 British paratroopers landed near the battery at Merville which overlooked Sword Beach. They attacked the battery, resulting in fierce hand-to-hand fighting, in which half the unit was lost. By the end, the battery was theirs, and they had destroyed the guns of the Germans. The 16,000 American paratroopers of the 82nd and 101st Airborne Division had a rougher time than their British counterparts. Their job was to land at the base of the Peninsula and stop any counterattack toward the beaches by German troops stationed at Cherbourg. Like the British, they had to secure transport routes and in the case, the causeways across the flooded ground behind the landing beaches. Clouds and anti-aircraft fire scattered the 101st Airborne over a wide area. Some paratroopers landed in swampy ground, were dragged down by the weight of their own equipment and drowned before they could even get out of their harnesses. Only one of six men that landed close enough to reach their rendezvous point. Less than half the gliders managed to hit the drop zone and damage sustained in their landings led to their loss of valuable equipment. The 82nd also struggled, though not as badly. After landing, they captured Saint-Mère-et-Léglaise on the Cherbourg Road, the first town to be liberated by the Allies. Scattered as it were, the paratroopers were unable to secure the bridges across the River Merde that were among their targets. But they were determined to do their very best they could in difficult circumstances. Men cut off from their units joined up with other formations. They attacked German troops wherever they found them, ambushing the enemy as they raced through the darkness. Trying to work out what was happening, Lieutenant General Falley, head of the German 91st Division, was among those killed by the wandering paratroopers. Falley was killed while driving back to his headquarters from the war games at Rennes. His movements were part of a frantic mass of activity as the Germans tried to work out what was happening from this surprise. The first paratroopers had landed just after midnight but it wasn't until one thirty a.m. that word of a possible invasion reached the German 7th Army headquarters. At 3 a.m., word was sent to the military high command in Germany that an airborne invasion was underway, though the discovery of some of Rupert dummies were creating confusion about whether this was real and what was really happening. At 4 a.m., General Krauss sent a cycle regiment in the wrong direction tricked by the dummy paratroopers. The absence of senior commanders added to the chaos. Tank formations that were crewed and ready by 2 a.m. were not deployed until 8 a.m. Self-propelled artillery was sent out for a counterattack, only to be withdrawn as it headed up the road. The report was that this was a major invasion which was sent to Berlin at 6 a.m., but critical reserves weren't released for another 10 hours. The invasion had begun, though the paratrooper landings were chaotic for the Allies. This was nothing compared to the chaos on the other side of the lines. Despite its problems, D-Day was off to a very good start. We're going to talk about Omaha Beach now. That will be the only beach we talk about tonight and included in this episode. The most difficult and costly of the seaborne landings took place on one of the American beaches codenamed Omaha. Omaha had been chosen because of its strategically important location. That stretch of the coast needed to be taken to link the other American beach, Utah, in the west, with the beaches targeted by British and Canadian forces. Due to its terrain, Omaha was an unpleasant choice. 300 yards of exposed sandy beach led up to a steep, shingle bank that the troops would have been to, had to ascend beyond that a seawall and sand dunes were topped off with a 150-foot plateau on which the Germans had built defensive positions at either end of the plateau 100-foot cliffs blocked the way the only exits from the beach were four ravines piercing the face of the plateau and each of these was well defended by German troops. To make matters worse, the bombing that preceded the landings were hindered by cloud cover. Forced to attack through the clouds, the American Liberator heavy bombers feared dropping bombs too far short of their targets and so hitting the invasion fleet. To avoid this, they had erred on the side of caution. Hundreds of tons of ex- high explosives have been dropped just beyond Omaha Beach, but instead of striking the German forward defenses, they had hit the fields behind them. The German defenses remained largely intact. American soldiers who were waiting onto the Fox Beach section of Omaha Beach, which, in Normandy, which is in Normandy, France, on the morning of June 6, 1944. The bombardment from air and sea stopped in time for the landings. But because of the delays in troops setting out, this created a huge gap between the bombardment and the assault time for the Germans to recover and start firing on the approaching craft. As the American forces approached the shore, rocket ships opened fire to support them. But many of the shots fell short, hitting landing craft, hitting their own landing craft. A northwesterly wind hit the coast as the landing craft approached. At least ten vessels were swamped by waves and sank, many of their occupants drowning. A similar fate meant the crews of tanks as they left their transports too far offshore. On many of them, the amphibious gear failed, the vehicles sinking and taking their crews down with them. Attempts to land artillery from amphibious craft also ended in disaster. The failures in launching the tanks meant that the infantry hit the beaches without the armored support and so withstood the worst of the initial assault by the Germans. There was no subtlety to the plan they had been given, no attempt to use maneuvers to seize the routes off the beach. It would be a headlong assault onto the enemy fire, much like those had characterized the First World War. The Americans decided to deploy their landing craft 12 miles offshore, unlike the less cautious British who chosen just seven miles. As a result, it took three hours for most of the attackers to reach shore. Drenched in sea spray and stepping in the vomit of their sick comrades, it might almost have been a relief when the front gates opened and they could get out of the craft. Any sense of relief swiftly turned to horror as they made their way onto the beach. German firepower from the cliffs above inflicted heavy casualties. Some men weighed down by 68 pounds of equipment, drowned before they could reach the shore. Reaching land, most men sought cover. Most of the obstacles on the beach remained intact, untouched by either of the preliminary bombardment or by the engineers now struggling to make it safely to the shore. And so... The obstacles designed to hinder the Americans became their shelters. Paralyzed by fear, men crouched behind what cover they could find, praying for deliverance from this nightmare that continued. The American forces were now pinned down on the beach. Machine gun and artillery fire meant it took an extraordinary courage to try to advance. They did not have the specialist anti-tank vehicles the British used. And most of the bulldozers meant to clear obstacles have been lost in the landings. Although with 40% of the engineers trained to clear the way, seeing their troops stuck in a bloody trap, Bradley and other commanders began to worry about whether they could ever make it off the beach at all. Montgomery even suggested to the remaining troops might be redirected to another beach. Yet among all this mayhem, there were some small signs of progress. An infantry company from the second wave of landings was blown off course but reached the seawall and picked its way through the minefield beyond. Together with a group of rangers, these men reached the plateau and stopped a counterattack being launched against the men on the beach. Further east, two battalions used used the smoke from burning undergrowth and buildings as cover. By the time the German artillery, artillery found the range on their position, they were off the beach. So as uh, as I'm continuing this episode of the bombardment on uh, the, the, uh, the Omaha Beach, uh, a thunderstorm is coming up right now, so we're hearing some uh, background effects, so whether anyone can hear it on the podcast. Throughout the morning, a traffic jam developed on Omaha Beach. As newly arrived troops became trapped behind those already there, But those who had managed to press inland, away from the beach, started to chip away at the Germans in their pillbox positions. Not enough men had reached the high ground to achieve a breakthrough, but they at least divided the forces and attention of the defenders. Seeing that extreme measures were needed to break through, General Huber, commander of the 1st Infantry Division, called for a renewed naval bombardment the ships sailed in so close, rifle fire could hit some of the ships. But the Navy began to shell the enemy positions. With the forces so close, there was a risk of hitting their own men. But if something didn't change, the troops on the beach were all dead anyway. While the Germans had the manpower and the defenses to hold up the Americans, they lacked any reserves with which to launch a counterattack. The 915th Regiment been drawn off by the paratrooper landings while the 352nd and 716th divisions together represented more troops than the allies had counted on being there they were still outnumbered as the heroism of of individual american soldiers led to small breakthroughs and advances there was no way to push them back bit by bit the americans began working their way up the ravines until at last a breakthrough was achieved by 11 a.m. enough american troops had pressed forward inland to capture nearby vierville while some men kept up the fight against the defenses at the top of the plateau others began to make their way cautiously off the beach bulldozers and explosives were turned to the task of clearing the obstacles and minefields blocking their way one by one the German positions above Omaha Beach were destroyed, either by the shelling of naval guns or by determined and courageous attacks by small bands of soldiers. At 1.30 p.m., Major General Jarreau signaled to Bradley the men previously trapped on the beach were making their way inland. As the Germans responded to the growing crisis up and down the coast, they made a crucial error in judgment the American forces at Omaha had achieved only a shallow beachhead and taken heavy losses along the way. If the Allies could be driven back into the sea, it was here. But instead, on focusing on Omaha, the German commanders hurried to bring their reserves to bear against the British and Canadians, who had landed further east. One battalion of infantry was sent to tackle the American paratroopers in the Quinton Peninsula. Another lone battalion was sent to stem the tide of Americans pouring out of Omaha Beach. It was not nearly enough. By dusk, the beachhead stretched only 1,200 yards inland. The Americans had not reached their D-Day objectives, though they were now within a mile of them. They settled down to hold the ground they had taken. The great coast and struggle that had gone into taking Omaha Beach led to a change of plans in what was unloaded that night. Instead of quickly building up supplies on the beach to support the troops who had already landed, the bare minimum was landed to see them through the night. The focus was on bringing more troops ashore to keep up the fight. Exhausted sailors worked long into the night, bringing more of the fighting force off the transport ships and onto dry land. At Omaha, the Allies had come closer to defeat than anywhere else in the D-Day landings. But perseverance and courage courage is what saw them through. Thanks for listening. Greg Perry, signing out.